0: I want you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. Now, I don't know about you, but I love a good story. Now, for a good story, at least in our culture, you start off with a hook, something to grab their curiosity. <clears throat> there are two versions of Jesus, Jesus, the story of Jesus' birth, and... Luke, a Gentile, has one perspective, and Matthew, a Jew, has another perspective. And they tell the story from those perspectives, not to contradict, but to complement. I want us to look at Matthew's version. Matthew is a Jew. The story does have an amazing beginning, at least starting with verse 18, but it starts off with a genealogy. Let me tell you about all of the people in Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, past, in his ancestry. Let me tell you about all of these people. He lists a total of 14 times 3. You, you do the math. What is that? 14 times 3. 42. 42 people are, are mentioned here. Actually, 42 plus four others those four others are mothers why would matthew want to hook us into his story of the life of jesus with oh my goodness a genealogy as a westerner i have to be careful when i start reading the first 10 chapters of first chronicles okay I don't need no doze or anything like that. It will put me fast asleep. I'm just not into genealogies, but Jews were. But this is a special genealogy. It sets us up, actually, for verse 18. We discover in verse 1, it says here, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, that is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Son of David, the Son of God of Abraham. This Jesus was a Jew, and he was born in the lineage of a king, King David. Now, before I go any further, I want to pray. I believe that God wants to speak to some hearts. We're not going to spend our whole time on the genealogy, but you're going to discover something pretty amazing even with that. But I want us to see more of who this Jesus is and the genealogy points us in that direction. Let me pray. Father, I just ask as we study your word this morning that your spirit would speak to our hearts, that you would open our eyes. Some of us, Father, we need to be set free and we need this gift of eternal life that Jesus came to bring. I ask you, Father, this is not something that I can do, but only you can. Would you give those three gifts today? In the next 30 minutes, open eyes, set people free, and make them alive. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Verse 18, the real story begins here, but Matthew gives us an introduction. So let me read verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary doesn't start off talking about his father, but his mother, his mother, Mary. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. If you were to look at this genealogy specifically, what is it, verses 3 through 5, 3 through 6, those verses we find four mothers mentioned. Now, they're not spoken of as wives. They're spoken of as mothers. And who were these four mothers? The first one we encounter is in verse 3. Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Tamar was in the land of Canaan. She was a Canaanite. She was a foreigner. She wasn't a Jew. She wasn't a Hebrew. She was a foreigner, a Gentile. She posed as a prostitute to Judah and gave birth to those two boys, Perez and Zerah. The next one we encounter is in verse 5. Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. I mean, you remember Rahab. She was the prostitute that welcomed the Jewish spies into Jericho hid them, and God spared her life. When, she was, when, when Jericho fell, not only was she spared, but she was assimilated into the Jewish community, apparently marrying a Jew and becoming the mother of Boaz. Boaz married Ruth. But that's not how the story tells it. It says, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Ruth is not identified as the wife of Boaz, but the mother of Obed. Four mothers here. Ruth was a Moabitess. She worshipped other gods. She didn't worship Yahweh, not until she married into a Jewish family, not until she made that break with her culture. Her husband had died Naomi's husband had died, and so Ruth went with Naomi, her mother-in-law, to Bethlehem, her hometown. She was assimilated now into the Jewish community, a a mother, a woman, and a foreigner. One more mother. Verse 6, David was the father of Solomon. We all know Solomon, the wisest king to be born in Israel whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Doesn't even mention the woman's name. Do you know her name? Tell me. Bathsheba, that's right. Bathsheba had been Uriah's wife, but David, David had Uriah killed to cover up his sin. David went to such lengths to cover up his sin the sin of adultery, he called Bathsheba to his, cha- his bedchamber. She was, by order of the king, forced to sleep with him because of his pride, because of his lusts, and he covered it all up. Now, I've heard many people, most of them, if not all of them, non-Christians, saying, how is it that David, in, in your religion, is exalted as this incredible king and yet he committed adultery, didn't even repent of it until nine months later, and he had the woman's husband killed? And you lift up this man? And I would bring that to the table here. Matthew knows that. Matthew, why are you including these four women? Three of them are foreigners. Three of them were associated in some way with a sex scandal. This is Jesus' genealogy? Hello? Let's paint the man good, shall we? But Matthew wants to bear Jesus' genealogy to the world and point out these four women and then move on to talk about Mary, the mother of Jesus, wrapped up at least the scandal, the, the slanderous rumor on the street was that she had slept with Joseph. And some would even believe that she had slept with a Roman soldier. That's what the Jews believed. And that for that reason, she gave birth to Jesus. This Jesus' mother was Mary. She wasn't wrapped up in some sex scandal. But that was the cloud that hung over her and Jesus while he was growing up. I have to pause and I have to wonder, wow, why this? Because on top of it, Matthew, one step further, with all of this revelation, I mean, most kings, come on. If you want to record the king's genealogy, you're going to talk about his triumphs in battle. You're going to talk about all of these great men who did what, great things, building projects, wars, that, and, and battles that were won, and how wonderful he was. But instead, Matthew focuses on the scandalous stuff, you know, things we want to sweep under the carpet, right? And then he concludes with this the genealogy, verse 17. It says, thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David. Abraham the Jew to David the king. 14 from David to the exile in Babylon and 14 from the exile to Christ. Why was he wanting to focus on the exile? Of all things... That was God's discipline upon the Jews for their rebellion. Another thing we would want to sweep under the carpet if I were a Jew. I wouldn't want to sell someone on a king who is in the line of a people who had been exiled for their sin. Actually, Matthew leaves out a few generations. He does this purposefully. He does this purposefully. We could point to, to some of the people that he left out. There's, I think there's a total of about four that he left out. So it's not by talking about 14 generations from Adam to David, and then 14 from David to the exile, and 14 from the exile to Jesus. It's not that he's trying to prove something with these numbers, but he's trying to say something. He's trying to teach us. He's trying to open our eyes to something. 14 14, 14. Now, being a good Jew, he was well-schooled in numerology. That is, using numbers that had symbols. 14, of course, is seven times two. Seven, the number of completeness or perfection. But doubly so. Three times the number within the Trinity. Now, I'm not sure Matthew understood the concept of the Trinity at the time, but three times. What is he trying to say? I believe he's trying to say this. Do you see all of this scandal? Do you see all of this sin embedded and the imperfections in the human genealogy of Jesus? That is what he is trying to communicate. He is trying to communicate the very mission of Jesus. We learn about that in the vision of an angel that Joseph has a dream. Because Joseph, thinking his wife, Mary, that when you're engaged or betrothed in the Jewish tradition, you're considered husband and wife. You're not married. You shouldn't be having sex. And so when he found out she was pregnant, this caught him off guard. I'm about to marry an unfaithful woman. But being a good man... He wanted to divorce her, and that's what you would need to do legally in a Jewish culture. You'd have to go through a divorce with your engaged person in order to separate from them. He wouldn't tolerate this. And so he was going to do this privately. So it says, verse 20, but after he had considered this, putting her off, or or putting her away privately, divorcing her, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David. That takes the reader back to the genealogy that, that's a scandalous genealogy. That's a genealogy fraught with imperfections, mistakes, and sin. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Not from a man, but from the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine his eyes wide? My virgin betrothed is pregnant from the Holy Spirit. What? Something like this had never happened before. I tell you what, the angel had his ear. Who who is this special child then? This is what the angel says. She will give birth to a son. And you will give him the name Jesus. Now Jesus in the Greek means he saves or savior. Because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin, this is Isaiah 7, 14, by the way, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel. I'm going to come back to that, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he had no union with her. In other words, he didn't have sex with her until she gave birth to a son and he gave him name Jesus, Savior. Why would Jesus be given this name? Obviously, he would be going to the cross to pay for yours and my sin, and in doing this, would act as my Savior. But understand, Matthew wants to prove something to us by quoting from Isaiah 7, 14. And you shall, call his, you shall call him what? In Emmanuel, d- 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 I mean, in Isaiah, you shall call him Jesus? Is that what Isaiah said? No. But you shall call him Emmanuel. Matthew, did you like, did you, like miss what your point that you were trying to say? I mean, he, he's going to call they're going to call him Jesus. And yet to prove this, you're talking about a child born of a virgin, but calling him Emmanuel. So in Matthew's mind, he's seeing them as the same. Savior and Emmanuel, they mean the same thing. Savior and God with us, God amongst us. How is this the case? Look at a verse. You don't have to turn there. I can just read it to you. But this is what it says. In Isaiah, same prophet, Isaiah 43, verse 11. I, even I, am the Lord. Yahweh. He uses his covenantal name here. And apart from me, there is no Savior. The Lord is saying, I am the only Savior. You see, I mean, it's one thing to use a man like Moses to, re- to rescue or deliver your people, but Moses technically didn't deliver. Moses didn't part the sea. Moses didn't bring about the 10 plagues. Moses didn't convince Pharaoh to let the people go. Moses didn't provide the manna. He didn't provide the quail. He didn't provide the the winning strategy over the Amalekites. Moses simply led them, and it was God, the only Savior, that delivered them. We call it the Exodus. But now, Jesus has this name, Savior, and he... Will save his people from their sins, he will be the savior. Wait, 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 wait. Isaiah tells us that only God is savior. God did just, he didn't just use Jesus and then God did all of it. Jesus himself became the sacrifice, he was the one to save his people from their sins. Only God can do this as a result. To call Jesus Savior or to call him God with us, it's the same thing, because only God can save. I want us to see something here. (coughs) Jesus wasn't just Savior. He wasn't just God. But his genealogy were actually his credentials being a king. Not just that he was the son of David. His credentials to be savior. He was birthed in the midst of scandal in his past, not in himself, of sin in his past. His ancestors, less than perfect. And yet Matthew's point is this. 14, 14, 14. Genealogies. You see, his genealogy was doubly perfect, to credential him as the king of this kingdom, the kingdom of God that Daniel prophesied about that I told in the kid's story in Daniel chapter 2. This Jesus, born king of the Jews, he would be the one to establish this kingdom on earth to win the enemies of the other kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, into his kingdom, the kingdom of light. He was to be this king. The only way to do that, though, the only way for him to be qualified would be to be a man born as a king with a lurid past because it was those people that he came to save. You see, his past, his genealogy, were his credentials. To being this perfect king. Well, I think there's more to it than this, and why Matthew wants to tell us about Jesus's Laura genealogy to set him up as the very one who would save his people, those very people, from their sin. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter nine. Matthew, sh- this this whole story of Jesus. It's very personal for him that this Jesus, this king born in Bethlehem, would save his people, would save Matthew from their sins. It's very personal because Matthew was a chief sinner. This story of Jesus was very personal to him, and he shares his personal testimony. He does it actually in one verse. Just one verse, Matthew 9, verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. He wasn't filling in for a tax collector. He was a tax collector. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. That's Matthew's testimony. So much is packed in that one verse. We realize this Matthew He was a pretty smart man. Being a tax collector, you had to be. He swindled, though, many people. And because nobody would associate with him, because he was this tax collector who would take extra money from the Jews to line his pockets, not associating with him, who were the only ones that he could associate with? We read about it in the next verse. Here, follow me. This sinner, this tax collector... That when people walked by him, if they were a good shot, they would spit at him in the face. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners, they were the only people that would be willing to hang out with this guy because they were the outcasts. They were the disgraced and the disgraceful. They came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus didn't let his disciples answer that question. He stepped up to the plate himself. And on hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Now, to set this story up, this personal testimony of Levi's, of Matthew, his other name was Levi, he tells the story of Jesus coming to Capernaum. And apparently, Matthew had his tax booth set up in Capernaum because in the prior verses, verses 1 through 8, Jesus heals this man who could not walk, and as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Matthew lived in Capernaum. What's so special about this story, right before his testimony? Jesus could have just walked, or or, because the man was lowered through the roof. You remember that story. They made a big hole in the roof of the house that he was staying at, probably Peter's house. Peter's probably looking at him like, Jesus, can you do something about this? The man's lowered down, and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees, they had been gathered there, wondering what Jesus is going to teach, kind of observing them. What's his theology? Is he a sound teacher, or is he just going to be one of those cult leaders pulling people astray from Israel? And so as they observed, the first thing he says is, your sins are forgiven. Hmm? What only God can forgive? Now, they don't say it out loud, right? That's what they're thinking. And Jesus perceives their thoughts and he says, hey, you know what? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or to take up your mat and walk and be healed? But I am doing this so that you know that the son of man has authority to forgive sins. The man stood up, the lame man stood up, took up his mat and walked out the door, healed. But everyone there knew that Jesus, the son of man, also had authority to forgive sins. And that man, that son of man who had authority to forgive sins, left that place and immediately encountered Matthew, one of the worst sinners in Capernaum, and said, want you to follow me. Matthew, I need you. I want you to be my disciple. I want you to be a follower of me. And I'm going to, tra- I'm elaborating a bit. I'm going to train you how to do what I'm going to be doing. So watch closely. Yeah, I'm healing somebody. Raising the widow's son from the dead. You're going to do this too. Just ki- watch. Jesus healed. Jesus spoke words of life. He opened eyes. He set people free, and he gave life to the dead, to the spiritually dead as well. Jesus said, Matthew, in essence, do you believe that I have the authority to forgive sins? Because can you imagine, Matthew, living in this shame as a defrauder, a swindler, the one that people would walk by on the other side of the road. This man filled with shame was the candidate to be an apostle of Jesus and for his sins to be forgiven. You know, many times when people come to a party and they don't want to be seen, they don't go through the front door, they go through the back door. That's how Matthew follows Jesus. Private goes through the back door. Jesus loves backdoor Christians. He loves Christians who recognize the shame of their sin. That they themselves can't do anything about it. They can't shuck the filth off of their life. It is a part of them. They can't forgive themselves. They don't have that authority, but Jesus does. They don't come through the front door in the kingdom. They go through the back door because that's where the true gate is. The true gate is for those who are poor in spirit, who recognize their spiritual bankruptcy like Matthew did, like these people in Jesus' genealogy. Like the people during the exile that had come to this point of such rebellion against God, he said, I can't even have you in my presence anymore. And off they went to Babylon. Those are the people Jesus died for. I want you to consider Matthew's testimony. Because Jesus tells us when he is looking out over the people who attended this banquet, other tax collectors, other sinners, others who were so filled with shame. They were standing at the back door, so to speak. Jesus was ushering in this kingdom, but they wanted to hide. And Jesus came looking for them. Why? Because Jesus is a friend of sinners. Jesus didn't come to call the righteous. He didn't come to call those who believed that they were healthy. He came to the sick. And you know what? That's me. That's you. You were sick. You were really sick, people. And I was really sick. I wasn't healthy. You look at my genealogy. I actually have a pretty decent genealogy. All the way back to the 1600s, a man by the name of Abraham Pearson, a Puritan pastor, came to America, and through his genealogy, one of them started a school that later became known as Yale. Another, A.T. Pearson, became a well known pastor. That was over 100 years ago, though. But you see, I'm a backdoor Christian because I realized that by going to church, that didn't make me a Christian. I realized that by saying the right things, that didn't make me a Christian. I realized that by doing all of these good things, and hey, people, I gave my 10 cents in the offering plate every Sunday. Come on. But that didn't make me a Christian. And I remember my brother, three and a half years older than me. He's, he's about 10 years ago, or, or actually 13 years ago. No, 10 years ago. Went to be with the Lord. And when I was 14 years of age, he said this, and it, at the time... It didn't sound so corny. As I reflect on it, I think it kind of does to me today. But it really struck home to me. He said, Mike, going to church doesn't make you any more a Christian than standing in a garage makes you a car. Hmm. I thought about that. As silly as it was, and I realized that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm trying to come through the front door. And I think I've got it all together. And Jesus says, Mike, you haven't been shamed enough by your sin. You didn't realize just how spiritually bankrupt you are until my older brother sat me down and he explained to me that it was not by works so that no man can boast. It was only about this man, Jesus, that came on a mission as God, Emmanuel with us, to be Savior, to save his people from their sins. And that's you and that's me. No one left out. And he came to be able to wash away sins and to be able to give them sight, to be able to give them freedom, to be able to give them life. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. My sins, my shame, all of it forgiven. All of the weight of that on Jesus on the cross, he took it for me, for you. You see, that is who Jesus is. His genealogy, they're the credentials of this king. They highlight the very reason why he needed to come as Savior, and as God with us. Now, I'll be honest with you. I've experienced shame. I think every single one of you have experienced shame. Some of you have made a decision to go through the back door and come into the kingdom. I hope you don't mind that analogy, by the way. Sometimes people think, you know, the back door, that's just not how you come into a house. Most of our people, friends, come through the back through the front door. It's never locked. Just don't come in at midnight; it might be locked then. But they come through the front door. But see, for the kingdom, it's it's through the back door. It's, it's recognizing my sh- your shame, your sinfulness. Many people run with their shame from God. Many people hide from God. They're so wearied. They have tried to escape this shame that's like this thick cloud of darkness over them, and they can't seem to get rid of it, follows them everywhere. You remember like in penis, Pigpen, pen, you know, the little cloud? Except this is far worse. It's darkness. It's, it's shame. It affects you emotionally, not just outwardly. And many run from God as hard as they can. And I'm going to tell you what, there is no other place you're going to de- be able to have that shame dealt with. Apart from Jesus, who came to save you from your sins. Who didn't come for the healthy, but the sick. Who didn't come for those who were righteous on the outside. You know, the dime in the offering plate. The sacrifices. He came for those who were sinners. Who were filled with shame for their sins. And I'm just going to challenge you that if you have given up on yourself, you're actually in a good place. If that shame you think is is keeping you at arm's length from God, just understand it's not his arm that's pushing you away. It is your arm that is pushing him away because he came to save people just like you. He came to deal with your sin and to deal with your shame. We all have it. There's only one answer, one remedy, one cure for that sickness. And I just read you the story about it. Matthew, that was his testimony. If there was anyone who was filled with shame, it was him. And I just encourage you, if you have not seen the TV series, The Chosen, they do a great job with this guy. Wow, really do. And he comes through the back door and he follows Jesus and he is born anew. Sins forgiven, shame like shackle, shackles released, falling off. He's a new man. This can be you. That you are the very reason Jesus came. I'm just going to ask you today, are you still running from the one who came to help you and save you? Or are you willing to go through that back door? Are you willing to say, God, I'm I'm coming just as I am. I can't clean myself up. I'm filthy. Well, good for you. You see it. You admit it. Those are your credentials for coming into the kingdom. Just one more thing, though. You need with your heart to surrender to him. Like those magi kneeling before Jesus to worship him. Truly worship him. That's a surrender, a devotion that Jesus is looking today. From you. I'm going to encourage you, stop running. Stop hiding. Stop giving up. On God anyway. And realize he's your only answer. Can you stand with me? And I'm going to extend that challenge to every single one of us. If you have not surrendered to him, that today you would. I'm going to close in prayer. We're going to darken the lights. I want to call you to an event with God. You can't manufacture it. This is between you and him. If you've been walking away from him because of your shame, come back to him today. If you've been keeping him at arm's length for your whole life, put the hand down. He's not doing that to you. Welcome him. For as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Father, I just ask you, That you would today open the eyes of the blind, that they would see Jesus. Why and who He came for? That that God, you, as they believed that they would be set free, delivered from these sins and the shame, and that they too would have eternal life in intimacy with you forever. God, this is amazing. Jesus, thank you that you came for sinners such as me, such as Matthew, such as Jesus' genealogy. And I just ask you today, Spirit of God, you speak. Go beyond these feeble words of mine. You speak, Spirit of God, to hearts and call them to Jesus. And may they have an event with you today, God, that changes them Sins washed away. Shame gone. Do this, Father, I pray. In Jesus' name.